Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings 20. 1 Kings 20. We'll read the whole chapter. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him in horses and chariots, and he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children also are mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. And the messengers came again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you saying, Deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, All that you first demanded of your servant I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me and more also if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. And the king of Israel answered, Tell him, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. When Ben-Hadad heard this message, as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, he said to his men, Take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, By whom? And he said, Thus says the Lord, By the servants of the governors of the districts. And he said, Who shall begin the battle? And he answered, You. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and they were 232. And after them he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. And they went, on, they went out at noon while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths, he and the 32 kings who helped him. The servants of the governors of the districts went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him, men are coming out from Samaria. And he said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive. Or if they have come out for war, take them alive. So these went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts and the army that followed them, and each struck down his man. The Syrians fled and Israel pursued them, but Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself and consider well what you have to do, for in the spring the king of Syria will come up against you. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills, and so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. 
And do this, remove the kings, each from his post, and put commanders in their places, and muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. In the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went out against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of li- uh, like two little flocks of goats, but the Syrians filled the country. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, "Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, the Lord is a God of the hills, but He is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord." And they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day, the battle was joined. And the people of Israel struck down of the Syrians 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. And the rest fled into the city of Aphek. And the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Ben-Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city. And his servant said to him, Behold now, We have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they tied sackcloth around their waists and put ropes on their heads and went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. And he said, Does he still live? He is my brother. Now the men were watching for a sign and they quickly took it up from him. And said, Yes, your brother Ben-Hadad. Then he said, Go and bring him. And then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he caused him to come up into the chariot. Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities that my father took from your father I will restore. And you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. And a certain man of the sons of the prophet said to his fellow at the command of the Lord, Strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. And then he said to him, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. And then he found another man and he said, Strike me, please. And the man struck him, struck him and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. And the king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. And then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I have devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life, and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house, vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria." Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, which you have given to us to instruct us in who you are 
and how we are to live before you. And as we come to this story, we ask that you would empower us by your spirit to understand what you are saying uh, and then to apply it to our lives so that we might be built up in faith uh, to the glory of God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The right man in charge makes all the difference in the world. Just ask Abraham Lincoln. It was the uh, second year of the Civil War and the Northern Federalist armies were proving ineffective. The Norse Army of the Potomac was under the leadership of General George McClellan. Known for his charisma but not his courage, McClellan uh, was uh, timid and slow to engage the enemy. He would much rather engage in drills and preparation than fight. On occasions when McClellan did leave his, lead his men into battle, he was skittish. For example, in the seven days battle, he fled from General Lee's forces because he wrongly assumed that he was outnumbered uh, significantly by Lee, when in reality, McClellan had the bigger army and he was just overly frightened. A worse transgression still was McClellan's conduct at Antietam. Lee's southern uh, forces uh, had chosen to retreat across the river, but despite Lincoln's insistence to the contrary, McClellan uh, would not chase after his weakened foe. For six weeks, President Lincoln pressed McClellan to complete the job and take the fight to Lee. And for six weeks, the general refused. When he finally gave in, he slowly crossed the river And by this time, any hope of victory had been extinguished. And so President Lincoln relieved McClellan of his command. Having a man such as George McClellan at the helm proved to have disastrous consequences. Uh, He lacked urgency. He was timid. He was quick to give up the fight. One's left to wonder how many lives might have been saved if there was a different man uh, in charge of the armies who would obey Lincoln's orders and pursue the enemy with urgency and relentlessness. The right man makes all the difference in the world. In a way, you could say that this idea captures one of the major themes of the book of Kings, that leadership matters. One commentator has written that in the book of Kings, the author is in search for uh, the promised king who will lead God's people in righteousness so that they might experience his promised peace and blessing and favor. And in search of this king, the author of, of, of Kings, his focus is like a spotlight which swings back and forth from Judah to the south and Israel to the north. But he won't find what he's looking for, either in Judah or in Israel. Our passage this evening is part of King's unsuccessful search for a righteous king to arise for God's people. In fact, the last three chapters of 1 Kings is a concentrated part of this search for a righteous king to arise. While Elijah had been, uh, the prophet had been the main character in chapters 17 to 19, Starting in chapter 20, our focus now is primarily on Ahab, the king. Ahab had loomed as a a villainous, wicked character in our our last three chapters. This idol-worshiping, spiritually calloused persecutor of God's people, he had uh, shared the stage 
with Elijah. But Elijah, at least temporarily, has exited stage right. With Elijah on the stage, the focus had been on Israel's need to turn from their idols, such as Baal, and turn to the one true God. But now as the spotlight shifts to Ahab alone, the point we're meant to see is Israel's desperate need for a righteous, evil-conquering king. And this helps us to see the the point of this evening's text. It brings it into focus. Through uh, Ahab's negative example, we see in his negligence, in, in obeying God's commands, we see the great need of God's people to come under the rule of a righteous king who will not be negligent in destroying the enemies of God. Now, our chapter begins with the rattling of sabers and the clamor of imminent war. Syria uh, lay directly north of Israel. Now, at one time, Syria had been under the control uh, of the Israelite kings. Uh, Syria had since risen in power and conquered a number of, of Israelite cities uh, um, uh, before Ahab had ascended to the throne. And while Syria may not have been the most powerful uh, nation at the time, Syria still proved to be a dangerous foe to Israel. And within the cold heart of Syria's king, Ben-Hadad, began to stir this desire to flex his muscle. As our chapter begins, Then Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Ben-Hadad sets his army on a course south, marches for Ahab's capital of Samaria, and he sends his minions ahead with a message. We read, this is what Ben-Hadad says, and you need to know that Ben-Hadad translated means son of the god Hadad, or, uh, and Hadad's possibly another name for Baal. So this is what Ben-Hadad says, your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children are mine. I own you, Ahab. You and all that you have are mine. Now, whatever little you might know about kings such as Ahab, it's safe to say that powerful people don't normally like to be addressed in this way. But when the person talking to you is bigger and stronger than you, you engage in a basic calculation. You are going to take as much as you can, which is what Ahab does. He counts himself a subject of Ben-Hadad, and he thinks that Ben-Hadad's talk is really just a matter of showmanship. Only it's not. Ben-Hadad means what he says. He wants to humiliate Ahab. He wants Ahab's wealth. He wants Ahab's women. He wants Ahab's children. And this is just too much for Ahab. And when he resists Ben-Hadad's demands, it's a a signal uh, to pick up arms. So the armies of Syria surge on Samaria and war is imminent. And then something rather surprising, shocking even, happens. Ahab receives a visitor, receives a prophet, one of the messengers who had slipped through his extermination plan. Now it's not that this messenger appears that's shocking, it's what he says to this villainous king Ahab. As people who've been tracing the disastrous reign of Ahab, as we have through 1 Kings, we're expecting that God is going to drop the hammer on this dude. He is just going to smash him for all his many sins, finally. But that's not what happens. Not yet, at least. Not, Not as we might expect. Instead, this unnamed prophet points out at the gathering hordes, and he says to Ahab, Do you see these armies? 
uh, beyond the walls. Do you see them? This is what the Lord says. I will give you victory over them today, and you, Ahab, will know that I am the Lord. Now, this is not the sermon we should be expecting. Bad things happen to bad people. Ahab is a bad king. He should get his comeuppance. The sermon we'd expect to hear unleashed on Ahab is, now, Ahab, you get your just desserts. But instead, the prophet comes, and he brings a gracious word, an undeserved message, deliverance, victory. It's just one more display of God's uh, truth and power and grace at work. Now, meanwhile, in the enemy's tents, Syria's arrogance is on display. The scene with Ben-Hadad and his coalition of kings was like something out of a frat house. The alcohol is flowing freely and any clear judgment has been drowned out by the booze. Now, while the Bible doesn't prohibit drinking alcohol, it clearly warns that drunkenness is wrong and foolish. And and given that, uh, the Bible also has a specific word to rulers, those in charge, as Proverbs 31 does, uh, that there's a special warning that leaders and kings should be on guard against the the foolishness of getting drunk. And yet here's Ben-Hadad, a fool. He's drunk so much that his commands are are incoherent. He tells his his commanders uh, to take them alive, regardless of how they come. And so the armies go out to battle, and Ahab, according to the battle plans that God had laid out for him, strikes And Israel wins a great victory over the Syrians who are sent fleeing. And so Ben-Hadad's armies, they they scurry for refuge. But this isn't the end of the matter, God warns. Syria will be back. And so it is. Within uh, their tents, the Syrians regroup, and they're uh, plotting and they're thinking, trying to put their finger on what the problem was. One problem was the leaders. They needed to replace the kings with more battle-tested military men if they hoped to win, they think. But the greater, greater problem could be summarized by that old real estate adage, location, location, location. They say their gods are the gods of the hills. And so they were stronger than we, but let us fight against them in the plain and surely we will be stronger than they. They're thinking, we were playing on their home court, the home court of their gods. All we need to do is shift the battle location to the plains where our gods are in charge, and we'll come out on top. Now, this is exactly the kind of pagan theology which God's miracles at Zarephath in in 1 Kings 17 were meant to undercut. It's this idea that the gods each had their own uh, territory and that the Lord of Israel, like these so-called gods of Canaan, He had his own little jurisdiction within which he could exercise power. And and these Syrians are thinking, if we just get outside of that, we'll be okay. That's what it seemed to the Syrians was the problem. And this is a diagnosis that woefully misses the point. But in the spring, Ben-Hadad rallies his armies to the plains of Aphek. Israel looks like uh, the 8th grade boys basketball team being trotted out to play against MSU as they uh, they camp on these plains here against a multitude of Syrian forces. And yet once again, God speaks and he promises victory to Ahab. 
The Lord says through his prophet that he won't allow this faulty Syrian theology to go uncorrected. Syria thinks the Lord has uh, power only over the hills. Well, he's going to prove otherwise. So strengthened by God, Israel's small army is given a miraculous victory, and the Syrians flee again. And so they scamper into the city of Aphek. Ben-Hadad, their fearless king, hold himself up inside the city, and his advisors counsel him to seek mercy from Ahab. They go out on his behalf, and they grovel, and they plead his case. Now, to understand what happens next, I want to skip ahead. 2,800 years, about 2,500 miles east to Abbottabad, Pakistan. May 2nd, 2011. Nearly a decade after he had orchestrated the 9-11 attacks, Osama bin Laden had been located by American forces in a high-security compound. For more than 10 years, bin Laden had been hunted, uh, identified as an enemy of the United States, and significant resources had been dedicated to his capture or assassination. Finally, finally, this man who had caused the deaths of so many was in the crosshairs of SEAL Team 6 as they landed their helicopters on bin Laden's compound. Now what if, in those last minutes when America's most wanted man was cornered, President Obama issued the order to take him alive? What would the reaction have been of the American public if the president had ordered bin Laden to be transported to Camp David to discuss new opportunities for economic expansion in the Middle East. You can imagine what the response would have been. Well, that's basically what King Ahab does. When Ben-Hadad's advisors probe Ahab's intentions, Ahab receives his former enemy with open arms. He calls him, my brother, He takes him into his company. He enters into treaty with him. He makes a pact, a covenant with the enemy whom God had given into his hands. But is this really such a bad thing that Ahab, for all his many, many faults, for Ahab to show leniency to his defeated foe? Wouldn't Jesus say so many years later, blessed are the merciful And isn't it true that we should love our enemies? And what's more, from a a pragmatic standpoint, what was to complain about? The war was over, peace reigns, and as an added bonus, the economy will get some help too. What's not to like here? But our closing verses, starting at verse 35, are unambiguous in passing judgment on King Ahab. And in these final verses, we get three portraits of disobedience. We see the disobedient friend, we see the disobedient soldier, and we see the disobedient king. All this leading us to only one possible conclusion. King Ahab has failed grievously. And yet another nameless prophet appears on the scene in verse 35. His prophetic assignment is one of the stranger, more painful ones uh, that we see in Scripture because he's told by God to ask his friend to strike him. Uh, But his friend refuses. Now, under ordinary circumstances, we would say, this is a good thing. Uh, He's a decent fellow. This is the kind of friend you want. But these are not ordinary circumstances. God's spoken, and we must not presume to be more merciful than God. 
And since this man, his friend, would not strike at God's command, he wouldn't carry the order out, the prophet tells his companion that he will therefore be struck dead by a lion. And that's just what happens. The second instance of disobedience is when the prophet, having found another man to beat him up, goes to the king disguised as a soldier. And he tells the king a story about how, uh, though he had been charged with guarding an enemy, he had unwittingly allowed him to escape from his grasp. Now Ahab, listening to this, sees the verdict is clear. A life for a life. As this man has let his prisoner escape, so should the negligent soldier forfeit his life. Now both the disobedient friend here and the disobedient soldiers are meant to be pictures of Ahab's own sin. But tragically, While Ahab could recognize the failing of the soldier, he didn't see the failing in himself. You see, Ahab too had been under divine orders to strike and destroy the enemy, but he refused. He was negligent. He let him escape. The only fitting punishment for such negligence was the very one that Ahab himself had decreed. His life for Ben-Hadad's, his people for Syria's. Here, As Os Guinness has put it, Ahab is hoist on his own petard. So what does this story have to do with us? Well, there's three lessons, I think, that leap off the page of this story that God would have to shape our thinking and our living. The first lesson is one that we've encountered before in the ministry of Elijah, and so we'll be brief. God would have us know that he alone is God, And his power stretches over all things. Only he is worthy of our trust, our praise, our allegiance. And so he uh, goes to to show us through these, these two decisive victories that his power is not attached to an area. He's infinite in might. There's no boundary markers that hem God and his power in. He's not limited to certain jurisdictions. He's God. The theology of the Syrians we might think, well, that's just the Assyrians. Well, it's very much active today. How often do people, ourselves included, split the world into the religious realm, which God tinkers with, and the everyday realm of shuttling our kids to daycare, shuffling off to work, paying bills, taking classes, finding or keeping a spouse? Like the Syrians, we expect that God might be able to help us over here in the religious, spiritual, church realm, but in other places, not. But God brings forth victory for Ahab to undercut this exact point. He is not the God in some places and not others. His power is not bound up in certain locations or certain subject matters. He's the God who brought forth all things out of nothing, and his boundless power stretches out over it all. And so we're to see he as the Lord of the hills and the plains. We should worship and trust him alone. Secondly, this passage warns us about shaking hands with the enemy. Now we must understand how, we must understand Ahab's failure here and we need to grasp how seriously God takes it. Because it's meant to be instructive for us uh, that uh, the obedient Christian is meant to be at the same time merciful and gentle on the one hand and on the other hand entirely 
ruthless. As Christians, we must recognize that while Jesus exhibited mercy and gentleness toward others, toward the devil and his works, he did not exercise or give a modicum of mercy. While Jesus was the truest embodiment of love, he didn't entertain friendship with the world set against God. As Christians, insofar as we look like Jesus, we want a streak of properly directed ruthlessness running through us. And at this point, our text challenges us because, you see, the tendency of, our, of your heart and mine is not so different from King Ahab's. Like Ahab, we are prone to want to make agreements with our sin, informal understandings of sort that we'll look upon our sin in friendly terms. God in his mercy has, uh, comes, comes to undeserving sinners like us and he promises deliverance. He promises victory over sin. He tells us that we need not serve sin any longer as our domineering overlord. And yet, like Ahab, though this message of grace comes to us, we won't follow through. Though called to devote our sin to destruction, to put our sin to death, as Paul tells us in Romans 8.13, how often do we dally and delay and make peace treaties with our sin. Consider the sin of anger. A man may recognize that uh, his anger has become sinful, but he also fears deep down, for example, that he'll lose control of his kids if they don't fear him. Though oppressed, he might acknowledge that his anger is wrong. He holds on to it because his anger gets him the peace and quiet that he wants after a long day at the office. It's a useful sin if he would use that word. And so he makes peace with it. What about the sin of deceit? A woman's conscience may warn her that she is uh, not being truthful. But it's just a matter of self-preservation, she thinks. Or it's the only way that she'll get people to listen to her. The truth would only create a mess. She justifies the means by the end. And so she thinks it's a sin that doesn't need to be chased down. Then there's the man who serves the idol of control. He knows that it's wrong, perhaps even sees the damage that his idolatry causes. But at the same time, he knows that this idol helps him deliver in his job with great acclaim. It's what makes him useful, loved. It's also what protects him from being exposed. It's a character flaw, he concedes, but one that proves beneficial not only to him but to others. These are all symptoms of an Ahab-like heart. Or more appropriately, Ahab's heart is emblematic or representative of sin's work in every man's heart. We're prone to negligence. We're prone to pursue a policy of appeasement with respect to our sin. Like Ahab, we're tempted to invite the enemy into our chariots and even speak of him in positive tones. And in this regard, our passage is an urgent appeal. Don't shake hands with the enemy. See how serious God takes full, complete obedience. See how serious it is for, for one to be negligent in carrying out warfare against our spiritual enemies. God says to Ahab, if you would not obey me, if you would not exercise a full obedience in crushing the enemy underfoot, 
then I will give you over to the enemy. And that's what happens. Ahab would not kill his enemy, and so his enemy ultimately kills him in 1 Kings 22. Brings to mind the the quote of uh, the great pastor John Owen, a quote that we had inscribed on our kitchen wall in university, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Ahab proves himself once again to be a wicked king, but more than that, to be a negligent king. When it comes to the enemies of God and his people, Ahab, as Dale Ralph Davis puts it, he was guilty of spineless moderation, and it would destroy him, and it would bring God's people to ruin. Now, Ahab's failure was a common theme in Israel's line of kings. Ahab's negligence and half-hearted obedience pointed to the great need of God's people. For as the king went, so went the people. And so Ahab's tepid devotion to the Lord, his flimsy view of God's commands, his negligence in finishing the job would be reflected in Israel's own devotion. Like the Federalist forces under McClellan, the people needed a better leader. They needed a righteous king, a rigorous king, an enemy-conquering king. Ahab's failures draw the attention of God's people to our need. We need a righteous king whose zeal for God will result in no peace with the enemy. We need a king who will finish the job. Ahab's negligence marked the people's great need, but it was a need which God, as he promised, would move to meet. He's provided the righteous and conquering king which we need. The author of Hebrews tells us that Psalm 110 is a psalm, a song about Jesus. Psalm 110 is a song that celebrates Jesus' kingship. And in this song, the Lord God says to my God, and Hebrews tells us this is referring to Jesus. So, so the Lord God says to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And the song goes on to speak how the Lord brings victory and dominion for Jesus. Jesus, as this uh, promised king, the song tells us, will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter their leaders over the vast battlefield. As a righteous king who knew no sin himself, his will was to obey to the full his father's will. He rules by uprightness. He loves righteousness and hates wickedness. Jesus comes to be the diligent, righteous, evil-conquering king whom we needed. And his warfare would take him to the cross and into the grave. Having offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, Jesus being raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, he sits at the right hand of the Father in royal splendor and he awaits the final fulfillment of his victory when his enemies should be made the footstool for his feet. And the fulfillment of that victory will be ushered in when he comes again. His enemies and the enemies of his people, they will align themselves to make war on him. But Jesus, who is at once the lamb who was slain and the the king of kings, will conquer them. This is the, the, the picture that the book of Revelation lays out for us. 
God will give his enemies into the hands of his anointed king, Jesus. And there Jesus will stand on the battlefield against all that is unholy and wicked, against Satan and sin and death, and he will obliterate them. For he came to destroy the works of the devil, and he will not stay his hand. He won't let the enemy sue for peace. In that day, Christ the King will show his righteousness and his diligence where Ahab failed. He'll press the battle to the end, and he'll devote to destruction all those who have set themselves in unbelief against God and his anointed, and he will cast them as Revelation 20 tells us, into the eternal lake of fire. On the battlefield, there, King Jesus will stand in total victory. This spotlight which scans back and forth, north and south, in the book of Kings, comes to rest on him, on Jesus. Here is the conquering king who we need. Harvest, here is the king that you must look to. Here is the king you need, righteous, devoted, whose hand will not grow slack until he has crushed his every enemy under his feet. And what's more, his enemies will be trampled under our feet as well if we're joined to him by faith because the Bible says that we will conquer with him. Indeed, we're told that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your, referring to Christians, feet in Romans 16, 20. We'll obtain victory over God's enemies and ours in this righteous king if we belong to him. He is the king we need to entrust ourselves to. For it's true that even if we've, we've pledged our allegiance to him, we manifest too many of the, the heart qualities of the negligent, wicked Ahab. When left to our own devices, we too often let the enemy go free. Or worse, we welcome our sin close and embrace it. This is the destructive inclination of our hearts, and it points to our need to come under the banner of this righteous and conquering king and to look to him. And here's why. It was said of Napoleon's army that his presence would instantly rally his troops. In fact, Wellington, Napoleon's opponent, said that Napoleon's presence amongst uh, his troops was the equivalent of another 20,000 men in battle. Here was a commander who could rouse his troops, who would inspire their greatest efforts, and who had an incredible ability to press home to his men the challenge before them and to move them to press the fight to the enemy. In this regard, Napoleon was a great leader. His presence amongst his troops would sharpen their focus and solidify their purpose. It would propel them into battle and propel them to victory. If we're to win the fight against our sin and not have it kill us, we need to first cast our eyes to our commander, our king, who we follow behind. We must have our eyes fixed on him. We must see his example, but more than that, we must be joined to him so that his power and and his life and his vigor might animate our own fight. That not only in watching our captain on the battlefield, our king in the fight, uh, we, we would see that and be motivated 
to fight. But in having his life and power animate ours, we would increase, in increasing measure pursue our sin with a relentlessness and kill it. Beloved, our text shows us the great need of God's people to come under the rule of a king who, unlike Ahab, will lead them into total victory over their enemies and his, to bring us into a full and lasting peace from the spiritual forces of evil that would seek to destroy us. And so our text points us to Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, whose righteousness is true, whose hatred of evil is fierce and unmitigated, whose resolve to bring everlasting victory is stronger than steel. So let's look to him and trust him that being found in him, we may follow in his victory. Now, by his grace, with his help, relentlessly putting sin to death. And one day when he returns, enjoying the full victory over all our enemies. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given to us the one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus, we thank you that you came, that you would be the king that we need to rule over us, to subdue us to yourself, and then, Lord, to protect us to defend us, and to obtain the victory for us. Jesus, we look to you as our older brother, as our captain, and as our mighty, fierce, righteous, diligent, evil-conquering king. And we ask that as we look to you, that we would find increased zeal for our own fight against sin. But more importantly, as we're joined to you, we would experience your life-giving, sin-delivering power at work in us. And that we would seek by the Spirit to relentlessly pursue our sin and put it to death. And that one day, as those indwelt by the Spirit, we might have the joy of walking in the victory of the Son. As you, Jesus, the King, bring a final, full, complete victory over Satan, sin, and death. It's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. Let's uh, stand together and celebrate Christ our King. Rejoice, the Lord is King.
harvest. Receive now the blessing of our God and King. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, may abound in hope. Amen.